Hi, welcome to Almost Cooperstown. I'm Mark. And this is Gordon. And we love talking about baseball. So, this week, uh, the athletics started uh, uh, getting in the news about whether or not they're going to actually stay in Oakland. And, and as we've talked about in this podcast before, they have moved before. Um, but, you know, you've been around, uh, the, the athletics have been around long before you, but they've been in Oakland the whole time. What's your thought on the Oakland athletics moving as we talk about ballparks and groundskeepers and all that? Well, I guess for me, it's more interesting of thinking where they would be moving to rather than necessarily like why they're moving, because it's like I understand on some level there's a lot of teams in California and I would understand why a team would think about moving there. But at the same time, I also think that part of the reason is like whenever I see that stadium, it doesn't look like a particularly fun place to watch or play a game there. Uh, the that you're you're right about that, and it's it's one of the older parks, which we'll talk about later on in the major leagues, uh, and and kind of plays like it. The uh, in fact, I remember watching the Raiders play, uh, obviously in the same stadium, and they were one of the handful of teams where you had the infield cutouts in the you know uh, during the football game, and it would be just weird. And you thought, what about the baseball guys? I had a bunch of football guys running around out there. Like, like that um, had to have some aqu- effect on the quality of the field that they're playing on, because yeah. the, the the beating that it would take from that so you know the athletics you know have only been there uh, in a sense since uh what 19 they came from kansas city in 1967 i think um so it's pretty good long run when you think about it. is you know they've been there for over 50 years so it's not like they couldn't move but uh, you, know, you get so married to a team being in a city it's really hard for me to think about them moving particularly when they have that kind of history right and i i think that less i think moving them not moving them i i don't know things that would help influence my decision like what, what's the attendance rates of a's games not good not good and and, and everybody hates the park like you were alluding yeah. to so, so, so what would fix it, you know, and I think it's tough for ownership in that situation to necessarily weigh the, okay, yeah, we could invest a bunch of money or get the state of California to invest a bunch of money, though they don't seem particularly incentivized right. to do that anymore. Right, so right. The whole thing was like the city wasn't going to pay for it. And then, then uh, oh, well, they're like, we oh, well, we could find some other city <laughs> that will pay for it. Exactly. So it's like, but so it's like, but I also have to think, yeah, getting a new park would help. But would it help that much? Because it's not like the A's have been bad during this stretch they've been a competitive team a lot of these years and they still don't get the attendance so i can understand why a t- ownership would look to move a team like that because yeah sure building a new stadium might get you a temporary fan bump for a couple of years but if you invest a ton of money in a new stadium and you're back at the current attendance numbers within a decade you really it really wasn't an effective purchase for you and, you know, I think that's interesting with Oakland. So if you build a new ballpark, do you expect you're going to get 35,000? Because that's almost all you need now in some of these parks, right? You don't need to have capacities of 50,000 or 70,000 in order no, to make it. I, I think you're better off going with a lower capacity park because you're able to de- deliver a much higher overall quality of product to that number of people. I mean, we, we, we were at City Field recently and, you know, even with, you know, despite it obviously being limited capacity. 20%, right? It was still like you're able to deliver a much higher quality experience than I ever remember getting at like Shea mm, Stadium. Mm, mm. 
Mm, I think that's true. And and maybe it's, I, I guess I've heard the, the, the A's maybe Vegas, right? Vegas always comes up and there's a bunch of other cities that are up for expansion. Uh, I, for one, hope the Oakland A's stay with the, the green and the gold and they stay in Oakland and that just that they kind of just maybe a new ballpark. And I hope it yeah, works out there. I, hope I would, works. I would always prefer as team to stay where they are and, with their fan base, but at a certain point, it's just like, how big does that fan base need to be to actually justify that? Yeah, I'm still trying to figure out the whole Kansas City thing, right? They moved from Philadelphia, where they were for over 50 years, and they're in Kansas City for 12 years. Nah, we're out of here. We're, we're going to Oakland. So that must have been just weird for the people in Kansas City oh, to yeah, have them kind of come and go like that before they got the Royals. Exactly. So I, I don't know that they have a particularly big home um, field advantage to the A's, but we know that major leagues in general have uh, about a, only a 54% uh, home winning percentage, which is the lowest of all of the major sports, uh, which I find, uh, I guess, not that surprising, right? Yeah, I, I guess it's not that surprising, though you would think that, you know, it's hard to believe that it has that much of, I, I wonder how much of an effect it is. I think for one, it's lesser in baseball just due to the sheer number of games you're playing you play so many more games that i feel like you're going to have more teams picking good teams picking up road wins because you just play a lot more games that's naturally going to drive down the win rates but i also think in baseball it's much tougher for the crowd and atmosphere to have a moment-to-moment impact on a game yeah you could have the sense of anticipation but it's not like uh, the crowd chanting in basketball or crowd no- or crowd noise literally making it difficult to communicate in football that that's not as much of an issue in baseball that's true that's true and 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 the really the really good pitchers in particular right don't get you know rattled by the crowd yelling in the big clutch situations where they can't do it you you'll see pitchers you know have that happen to them where all of a sudden they get a, they they get into the moment and they get a little shit i always think about that if you remember, I think it was a play-in game right when they started the new wild card format between the Pirates and I want to say the Reds because it was Cueto pitching. And the Pirate fans got the Cueto. You remember he was on the mound and he dropped the ball. Like right. he was standing there and he dropped the ball because they were getting to him so much. So it can definitely happen. On an individual play, yeah. I think it's much harder to have a sustained impact on a game that like a, the crowds and other sports can't have. Yeah. 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 I think that's true. So, and, and we know, uh, as, as we're going to talk about, you know, parks and, and groundskeepers, um, you know, what are the better hitting parks right off the top of your head? If you didn't have to look, you probably would pick a few of the parks that were definitely be. Yeah, I, I would say three off the top of my head that I would support immediately would be Coors, Ar- Arlington and Yankee stadium. Right. And, uh, but Arlington now is, is no longer right they have the new ballpark so i don't even know i don't even know how that's changed how that's played i remember that was a barn box it, it was and and, and course field uh, is still in, in the top 10 but when i looked at the factors for 2021 bank the uh, great american ballpark in cincinnati and and so i think over a 30 game uh, season right now which is what we have or so um it's too hard it's just all you're seeing is what the trends are right now and the weird thing is is that for run scoring Great American Kauffman Stadium in Kansas City, uh, Miller Park, TD Ballpark in Florida, where the Blue Jays are playing. That's more indicative of the and Blue Jays, maybe, yeah, than of the ballpark. I, yeah, I think looking at a single season sample size, especially over the early 30, 30 games, games yeah. it's, it's it's not going to produce the data you want. You need to look year in, year out to account for the fact that, like, well, what if, like, one year – a team just isn't a particularly good offensive team in their state. Right. That doesn't mean it's not a hitter's park. It just means they're not very good. Right, right, right. So um, 
you know, we, we talk about the home field advantage and there is some evidence um, that umpires tend to make more favorable ball and strike calls on home hitters. Um, and, and that is really interesting to me because there's enough evidence of it, obviously, that you would have some sort of a trend. So mm-hmm. that's another reason. The, cra- the crowd affecting the umpire, you think? Yeah, that's that's analysts have attributed to this to pressure applied by a vocal crowd. Uh, unless umps are susceptible to fake crowd noise, too, that shouldn't have been an issue last year. <laughs> that is true. It would be very interesting. That would actually be a very interesting comparison to see if the bias towards the home team shifted at all last year because it was all artificial crowd noise. Yeah, no, they did. They do have a graph that came up, you know, in the StatCast area that shows that the more balls outside the strike zone were called strikes in the home parks than in, in than not. So mm-hmm. that is very, and if you're the away team. So there is evidence in there. So we're not surprised that umpires, whether they're conscious, they're certainly not conscious of it, um, might make calls in a particular way without even being aware of it. Right. And I think I think it's just like they it's almost a chicken and the egg kind of situation. What came first, the, the, the umpire responding to the crowd pressure or, or thinking about it or the crowd actually getting to him like. Right, right, right. So and that doesn't matter which park. Right. Which no. doesn't, you know, this is that, that's, that, that's universal across any park. So, you know, these these umpires and, and, and we've talked uh, on this podcast about robot umpires and the idea that, you know, at least from my point of view, and maybe you don't agree um, that the umpires, there needs to be a way for some technology assist to be given to the umpire so that the umpire could consult it in some way uh, without it being buzzed down from the major league office. Hey, you missed one. That's not going to work. Um, there has to be some, and, and the umpire's understanding of their own fallibility and the d- desire to get it right. That would, that would have them consult something that would let them check what they think they saw. I think it just, it, it has something has to change because I've seen way too many replays of at bats this year where there are multiple pitches that are well outside the zone that are getting called strikes. I I like that Wilmer Flores at bat. Right. Where like he gets called out on three consecutive strikes and not one pitch was in the strike zone for any three of the pitches. Like at at a certain point, the problem is, is that I don't necessarily know if umpire has gotten worse or our ability to judge how an umpire Uh, is doing has gotten so much better. Excellent point. Excellent. We're just like, like that. We are just noticing things so much more. And and we have evidence now. We didn't used to have evidence. We didn't have a box. Say, look, the guy missed the call. Yeah, no, you would just kind of, you know, you would just maybe the, the most you would get is that a guy would have a reputation for having an inconsistent zone or something. Right, 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 right. And and you, you know, should you really be? Let's let's. I don't I don't, I don't want this to break down into an umpire thing, or, or not, and we'll get off it. But the only point of mentioning it was, you know, because the home there they are calling more strikes, uh, you know, in favor of the home team. So there's bias there, and we're trying Correct. to eliminate bias. And so should we have umpires that have he's got a high strike zone or he's a low ball? umpire i mean should that really be the case well i think i think at the same time having the human element of umpiring does make the game more interesting yes i agree so i think that attempting to remove all bias from it the human element of refereeing and the judgment is important to the sport so i think i'd rather give them the tools to make the calls more i think consistency is almost more important than the accuracy yeah yeah, I think that's where a lot of people I'm fine with them missing calls. What I'm not fine with is a, a strike is a strike in one inning and then three innings later, it's a ball. And you're just like, I, I don't know why that was called differently. Like, I remember there was a pitch in the Mets game recently where like the guy literally threw down the center of the plate and it was called a ball. And we're like, 
and I even remember the announcers being like, I, I guess that's a ball. Like, I don't understand how that happened, but okay. Yeah. 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 So, well, we'll, we'll, we'll see how they, how they go with this. I, I just kind of think, you know, I've said it before. Tennis has, has managed to, you know, to have it happen and, and it hasn't made the game worse. It has made tennis a little more boring actually. And well, so I, I, I worry about that a little bit in baseball. It is interesting because like, like tennis, like you, you also have the element in tennis of like the, the, the field, the, the court itself. And tennis is obviously much more specific because, you know, you're going to play differently on hard court than you do on grass, than you do on clay. Yeah. 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 Posit. But baseball stadiums are different in that way, too. And even the way they were being tended to impacted the game. I think, obviously, things are a lot more uniform now. But, I mean, I've heard those stories of, like, what groundskeepers used to pull in the past to try and prep their field to be better for their team. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I assume that they, to whatever degree they're able, groundskeepers will do that. Um, but, you know, I, in fact, you know, in looking up for this podcast, I looked up something to say, so, so do you know why they wet down fields um, before the game? Why do they wet down the infield? I would assume to try and slow the ball so that it's easier to field. I, I think it was originally it was dust. And, and consi- so you're right on the consistency side, right? They're trying to come up with as most consistent hop as possible. But I, I remember the, the composition of the fields and they're, they're so much better at putting together the what would make up the dirt infield, right? How much of it's clay and this, that and other thing. But, you know, they were they were using, you know, brought in dirt for the infields. But maybe it was just easier, you know, not as easy as to keep it you know, all uniform and it would just smoke during the game and the field would come up, it would be all dusty. So they water it down to keep the dust from sort of getting, and you've played on plenty of fields. Oh God, there are dusty fields. Yeah. They're not fun to play on. But I also think that now, like one of the big paradigm shifts in regards to groundskeeping is I think the presentation of the field is so much more like I remember one of the things they always talk about at the beginning of the season is like what the grass they're using this year is like, yeah. uh, like this is this particular, you know, seed of grass that we're using. It's going to be this in the infield, you know, with a cross section of this, you know, the, the first part of the outfield into a different grass in the back part of the outfield. And they get so specific on that. And I have a feeling that it was probably never that hyper specific in the old days, but it was more just like, how do we make the field playable and work for us but also you know helps out our team in whatever way we can kind of massage the rules to work for us well and and i think everybody knows the example of the baltimore chop right because the the though this was back in the late 1890s or whatnot and they would let the infield dry out right near home plate so that the players playing if you remember in the dead ball era they're playing with these clubs that they just mm-hmm. kind of chop at the ball instead of trying to drive it and they can bounce the ball so hard off that hardened packed dirt in front of home plate it goes up high that the guy can run to first base before the ball even isn't the guy's glove on a ground ball yeah exactly like and and, and obviously i feel like we don't want that kind of like in terms of the actual playing field itself. And I think that is something that makes baseball kind of different is that like baseball fields aren't uniform, whereas virtually every other play, the only sport, it's the only sport where the playing field is not uniform from game to game. You know, you look at, you know, there's 10 baseball games going on in a day. You have 10 different fields. Right. Hockey rinks have a little bit of, you know, but even then they're more similar now than they used to be. They were, and there's still all of it's not like you have a hockey shape where there's also like this little section that just juts right. out extra. Right, 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 right. So uh, and, and being a groundskeeper, you know, was more important, you know, maybe it was more important before because they didn't have the 
tools and technology to take care of it so that getting a game played without all those tools and all these crews you know that we see today and specialists that can do all that to get a field ready to play you know if you're thinking 50 100 years ago um you know they had some you know they had some real challenges Oh yeah, they, those old groundkeepers had to. It was so much more just like knowledge and feel from years of experience. And so, yeah, I always remember when you watch those baseball movies. They always have that like crotchety old groundskeeper that like just somehow knows to like be able to talk to the earth and able to. And so they're <laughs> able to like get the field pristine. And now it's a science. Well, and and so there's there's a few of these you know old groundskeepers and and the the probably the sod father as he's called Roger uh, Bossard um, mm. was with the White Sox for over fifty years. So he he rejoined he joined the certainly White Sox. fitting I, the image of the grizzled old ground. Right, well, actually, no, he started as an assistant to his dad. Okay, mm, in 1967, he, he waits 26 years and he gets his dad retires and he gets to be the, the groundskeeper and he does it, you know, for another 20 years after that. So his grandfather and his uncle. So it's like a, the family business. Yeah, was, the family business is being the groundskeeper for the stadium. So in that case, you know, you kind of end up getting the best of both worlds because this guy has learned probably everything there is to know about the park itself. And now he's working with the science and the tools to, to make it look and perform even better. So, um, and, and our Mets had a uh, groundskeeper who also was there for almost 50 years. In fact, he was the head groundskeeper from the time they started. Um, uh, and and, and even he was a groundskeeper when they started, took over head groundskeeping in 74, Pete Flynn. Uh, and he held that post until 2001. And then and then instead of retiring, he went and joined the crew. So he started being, he was the guy rolling out the tarp out there. So I just think, talk about having a love for your job. Uh, and he was there for the Beatles in 1964 and all the way into, uh, you know, when, when, before they moved. So did he transfer over to City Field once I it was built. I don't know if he if he made it to City Field. Um, oh wait, no, no, because look, yeah, he stayed with the, uh, yeah, because I'm reading the little excerpt that yeah, he uh, has he has gone to City Field, right? Because yeah, he went Polo Shea and City Field. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. So he died uh, in 2017, but Pete Flynn, uh, even Met fans know Pete Flynn, uh, you know, because of how long he was there, um, and and other other parks. Um, so let's talk about some of the other parks and the as you say, you know, the, uh, idiosyncrasies of those parks. So the only uh, baseball only park um, that was built uh, in the mid 60s uh, was in Kansas City, the Kaufman Stadium or mm-hmm. Royal Stadium, I think. Then they renamed it Kaufman for the owner stadium. And it was for uh, 35 of 25 years. It was the only baseball only park stadium, which is interesting. So the Chiefs would play in Arrowhead, obviously, and the Royals. But everywhere else you had multi so you had the, the Jets Multi-use playing at Shea, yeah. and, and you had the Raiders in Oakland and so on and so forth. Um, and, and even the Angels shared it with the Rams, you know, at one point. So a lot of the teams, you know, had, had this thing going on. And how, how weird was it to be a groundskeeper, right, where in the middle of your baseball season <laughs> or near the end of it, when you're heading to the playoffs, you got to lay down sod, if you can, over the dirt infield park, which isn't going to take because it's a dirt infield under. So a lot of people just left the dirt infield there. And it was weird. Oh, yeah, I always remember seeing those highlights of like old Raiders games where you see Marcus Allen running down the field and he's like running over the infield, you know, part of the field because that's just, that's just what was there. 
So um, I also, and, and the Cardinals, who were a real speed team back in the 70s, um, had, you know, Willie McGee and Vince Coleman, and, uh, they, you know, would, would, they were definitely a running team. And so other teams, and I'm trying to remember, I don't know if it was the Royals in the 85 World Series or not, but they, they would water down, overwater the base pass to try to get these guys stuck, literally stuck in the mud so they couldn't run as crazy. I mean, Coleman was a crazy base dealer. You could do anything he could to slow the guy down. And, uh, and I always like it's like it's not very sporting, but at the same time, baseball has always been probably the sport, the, the major sport with the most strained relationship to to bending the rules and cheating. Um, like not cutting the grass. Like yeah. maybe, maybe you have a team that, you know, well, yeah, like any team bunts anymore. Right. Doesn't, I, mean, that, I guess I'm going to kill myself. Here, right. Because it, at one point when teams did bunt. Right. You might actually leave the grass a little longer. You know, if, you know, that would make it harder for the other team to field your bunts if you were a bunting team. But at the same time, even the dimensions of the field are going to play into how you construct your team. Like when you look at the, the Royals, they look at Kauffman Stadium, which is a bit, pretty big ballpark. Um for them, they're like, we're not going to compete by trying to hit the ball out of here playing 82 games a season. So they built a team that was going to hit a bunch of doubles and run all over the place. And that won a World Series. Right, right. And they, they played to their park. And the and the Astros, when they played in the Astrodome before where they are now, and uh, it's not, is it still called Minute Maid Park where the Astros play? I can't even remember the name of it. Uh, it was Enron Field and Minute Maid I, Park. And then changed it a bunch. I don't know. But don't anyway, know. yeah, and we talked about that. Sponsorship names make it hard to remember what the heck you call the field. Uh, but the Astros, you know, you, you really couldn't be a home run hitter in that air cooled environment at 72 degrees. So they had AstroTurf and they would build teams for speed and, and defense and pitching. And they had some pretty good teams, as we, you know, we know as Met fans that uh, competed all the way into the 80s. Uh, and, and they were made to fit that particular ballpark. And it is interesting because, you know, it's something I don't necessarily think about because, you know, it's so hard for me to to kind of wrap my head around this. But a lot of the ballparks, you know, you always think of ballparks as being these really old things, mostly because of the existence of Fenway and Wrigley. But there aren't actually a lot of older stadiums anymore. Like you're, you're starting to get into the things where, you know, like what was a new stadium to me is now one of the oldest ones. Hmm. Hmm. Right. Well, so if, if the old ones, right? We both can pick out the the Fenway and Wrigley, right? I mean, I can't. There's nothing else, right? That, yeah, that's yeah, that yeah. Nothing even really approaches that level. Like those two are in a complete class. Of but the own. third place place one might surprise you, right? It might surprise people. I think, yeah, because you wouldn't think about that. You wouldn't think like, oh wow, yeah, that's an old one, and is there because they're not a they're not a it's not a legacy team in some respects, you know, with Dodger stadium being the third oldest stadium now. And maybe well, not a legacy to Los Angeles, obviously. Well, they're not, they're not one of the original teams. Sure. They, well, Dodgers, they're, they're Dodgers, but they're but not they, in Brooklyn. That's what not, I'm saying. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. It's yeah. Like, yeah. They're not in Brooklyn. They're in, so, but the Dodgers have been there for coming up on 60 years, right? They, they opened in 1962 um, at, at Chavez ravine. What people may not remember is they moved West in 1958 and they put, played in the Coliseum. So having gone to USC, as I did, I remember when I went there um, a fairly long time ago, um, the seats were really far back from the field, even more than today, because they had to track in between from the 32 Olympics, mm-hmm. you know, that was there. So you were pretty far away from that. I can't for the life of me imagine how they configured a baseball stadium on that in that place. How that would even work. Right, right. So, but the Dodgers stadium is the third oldest stadium in the major leagues. And and that surprised me almost as much as the Angels stadium, which we called the Big A when I lived in California. I don't think they call it that anymore. Um, That is where the Angels play. 
which is wild to me because that I would have never put them up there because it's just like to me they're almost an expansion team. <laughs> I don't know why I think of them. Sixty that way. years later, right? But yeah, I, but I think of them. I think it's only because pop culture has rotted my brain to the point where I associate the Anaheim Angels with the the Anaheim Ducks from the Mighty Ducks. Yeah. So, like, that's what I always think. So, it's like, to me, the Angels, and because they change their name so often, they were Los Angeles, they've been, like, a billion... Right, they started with Los Angeles, okay, and then they went to California, and then they went to Anaheim, and then back to Los Angeles. Right, so when they probably became Anaheim at a time when I was a kid, so to me, they were, like, a newer franchise, even though they were it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, they, both they and the um, aforementioned Oakland A's uh, opened their stadiums in 1966, so, um, you it know, it's interesting that th- three of the top five or yeah, three of the top five are all in all in California. Right. Right. In terms of their age, they haven't come in and built new stadiums. Um, Kaufman Stadium opened in 73. We talked about that, which makes um, sense just because that was the they you know that was the team replacing the team that left St. Louis to go uh, to Oakland. Right. Right. Um, and and. Kansas City, uh, they no longer have a turf field. In fact, there are only two AstroTurf fields in the major leagues left. Now, that that's AstroTurf. I will say there is one other team that has a synthetic field, that's synthetic grass, that probably is going to become the wave of the future. Uh, but mm. do you know the two teams that still play on artificial surface? Well, one of them would have to be uh, the Blue Jays. That is correct. Oh, only when they play in Toronto, however, because right now they're Toronto. playing in Florida and they're going to play in Buffalo. And I think both of those are grass fields. Is the Minnesota stadium? Nope, nope. No target field, the new field that they moved to out of the dome. Yeah. Um, we we watched a game there today. Oh, Tampa Bay. Right, right. So Tampa. And, and you know, I, I still don't understand. You know, you lived in Florida for, uh, for a while. So I guess everybody that lives in Florida says, yeah, of course you need a dome stadium because it rains every day in Florida in the summertime. And that's why Tampa yeah. put a team in the dome in Florida, which just seems crazy. But the Marlins it, have one too. The problem is it should have been an open dome. Yeah, right. A retractable one. When they built that place, obviously, that was way before they did that. Yeah. Um, and 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 interesting enough, uh, the Tampa Stadium is not one of the 10 oldest ballparks, which kind of kind of blows my mind that it actually they, they built that thing with that in mind. Um, after the Blue Jays at number seven, the eighth oldest park. Um, I is, mean, the, the, the Rays are only a relatively recent expansion franchise because they came in with the D-backs in like 98, right? They did, yes, that's so it's true. Not, yeah, it's not surprising that they wouldn't be on that list. That's so true, that's true. Um, the the eighth team, uh, oldest team, is the White Sox. And, of course, White Sox fans will, will let you know that, yeah, this is the – at first this was like the new Comiskey, right, the second Comiskey Park, uh, and then they named it U.S. Cellular Field and now right, it's and Guaranteed now, Rate Field. Yeah, and that's what makes it really hard to track some of these because – you. I mean, you also could get into a really interesting philosophical argument. If you're dealing with a guaranteed rate field and you've replaced all of the amenities in it and you've replaced all the seats, is it still the same stadium as it was when it was second Kaminsky Park? You know, if, if, if it were built on the same site and it was a refurbishment, I might say yes, but that wasn't the case. Not only that at, at a guaranteed rate or with the new Yankee Stadium, which I think is a good example, right? Because it's built 
next to built on you know, but not on the actual same premise as right. I, I guess for me it's more interesting if you would take an original yankee stadium right and instead of moving it or changing it you just completely renovated it and replaced everything within every single part of new of old yankee stadium with a new thing but otherwise it was configured exactly the same yeah is uh, that a different stadium than the original one? It's a argument. Well, but it, if, if, if home plate is where it should be, I kind of look at it that way, right? If you go to the city field now and you walk on the parking lot to the game, there's a, there's a place where Shea Stadium's home plate was in the middle of the parking lot. Right, and so that's the difference is because city field is a completely different field right. than Shea. It's not exactly where it was, but if you just slowly replaced all the parts over a number of years, it's an interesting thing to think about. What so, makes a stadium a stadium at that point the the you know when when baseball was kind of you know get, just before it got we got into the uh, strike years in 94 um camden yards open um in 1992 and i think uh, like most baseball fans it's, it's a beautiful ballpark it's a beautiful ballpark today I've, I've been to games there um i like to watch it on tv the old buildings out there it has a really retro kind of feel and it still looks pretty good i think yeah, uh, I, I think that's the most that's the thing that i think is that throws you off about baltimore is because everybody know like i knew baltimore was a historical franchise they've been around forever right. they've tons of world series there's something about camden yards that just makes you think it's been there for a lot longer than since only 91 their their prior stadium memorial stadium where both the baltimore Colts, believe it or not before they went to indianapolis and the orioles played for years was just a big kind of i want to say monolithic ballpark with very little interesting features about it and you know even the old shea stadium in that same vein the 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 power alleys were the same down the line was the same it was it was so symmetrical uh that was a little boring Oh no! The old Shea, Shea Stadium was a boring stadium. No, don't get me wrong about that. So it had so, very little personality to it. Camden Yards was sort of like, oh, so this is the way a ballpark to, to, should be. And then two years later, the Indians, who were moribund, right? They were a bad team. That's kind of where the whole major league joke came out of, because you know they were really that bad for that yeah, long. Yeah, that, that they were actually the type of team that was so bad, people thought they might be trying to lose. <laughs> right, but in '94 they opened Jacobs Field. Uh, it's now known as uh, Progressive Field, of course, uh, in Cleveland. And what a great place to see a, a ball game. And I was fortunate enough to go to a World Series game at the Jake in 1995. Oh, yeah. And I watched Tommy Glavin just make the Indian hitters. I've probably said this before in this podcast, look silly that night. And But it was just a really great ballpark and and, and, and still is, I, I would hope. But I think it's also that I think it goes back to something we were talking about earlier with one of the things that all of these stadiums are doing by now reducing the number of people in the capacity, like it's interesting as you look as these stadiums open, like Jacobs field, which is the 10th oldest stadium now has a capacity of 35,000 people. Right. Whereas you go all the way back, even the stadium like Wrigley field had a bigger capacity. Dodger stadiums, 56,000. So I think when you have those giant mega ballparks it's actually hard to deliver the type of like you got to spend some money to go to a baseball game. So I think by reducing the number of people in the stadium, you're able mm. to deliver a much higher quality experience for the fans that are there. And certainly based on what happened through the pandemic that, you know, in the, baseball didn't have a good monetary year last year, nor did anybody given the pandemic, but they were able to survive because clearly they don't need fans in the stands in order to conduct a professional baseball season. Exactly. It just makes the game more enjoyable. So uh, I think, you know, the, the, the summary here is that groundskeeping, um, we, we kind of like the romantic stories of how groundskeepers try to, you know, 
change the field and how you have to learn how to, you know, you still have to learn how to play the parks, but I don't think that the groundskeepers can have the impact on the game and nor should they be able to have that impact to, to hopefully have an, an impact on the, on the outcome. They, of the game. they shouldn't because it's the same as if like your groundskeepers or your, 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 your staff were doctoring the baseballs before the game. Right, right. And, and, and so, but at the same time, as far as the idiosyncrasies of the parks themselves, right, if you are a left fielder and you play in Boston, I imagine you must take hundreds of balls off that wall in left field to make sure you understand exactly how every, the ball can bounce yeah. off that thing. Every carom, every way it can go. It gets very interesting. <laughs> so there, there are, are, are all kinds of little, little things about some of these parks. Uh, I remember the little uh, ramp up in the hill in, uh, was it in, in Houston? Or, or they had this, the hill in yeah, center field. That was, yeah, that was in, in, in Houston. They, they got rid of it now. Right, they got rid of that. <laughs> That was a strange thing. The guy would have to think, and an infected place. The guy's like, "I'm running up hills. I'm getting defense. Why is there a hill here? And why are we having to deal with this?" I feel so. like, that, like I think, I think, I think for me, if there's going to be any unusualities with the field itself, it needs to be with the dimensions and the way the walls of the outfield are construction constructed. There shouldn't be actually on-field obstacles for the players to deal with. That sounds like a really interesting game, but we're not playing that one. Right, right, right. And and nor do I think we talk about the uh, the Blue Jays and the Rays, and maybe the Rays to a certain degree do that, have a team that's sort of built, although they got a lot of home run hitters on that team now, right? Yeah, um, yeah, much more than they did before, but wouldn't they have a slashing and running team that kind of was where they were at last year, I thought, until yeah, they yeah, became yeah. a home run hitting team. Yeah, and I think every team in the major leagues is a home run hitting team, right? Now. Right, right. And how about the, trying to be the Blue Jays and have, you know, okay, so you, you build your roster, okay, to play on the turf field in, in Rogers uh, up in Toronto, but you don't play a game in there since, let's see, I guess it was September of 2019. Yeah, that's interesting as well. But you also deal with the fact that like it's it's going to make more sense to build a team around hitting home runs because even if you're not playing at your stadium, hitting a home run isn't going to necessarily change wherever you are. But if you go on the road and your team designed to hit the ball on the ground and run around a whole bunch, you know, well now we're on some team with super long grass. It's a lot harder to deal with. And, and the ball out over the fence doesn't change from park to park. I don't. I don't know how the groundskeepers get paid out of the ma- uh, in the major leagues, actually. But I, I saw that you know, and you would think that's probably the case. So if you're if you're like a minor league groundskeeper, you know, you get like thirteen dollars an hour or fifteen thousand. It's it's it is a you're doing it for the love of the game. You're you're not getting rich being a groundskeeper. And maybe it's better at the major league level, but I'm not even sure if that's the case. Yeah, I think that's very true. So, uh, well, we'll, uh, we'll definitely uh, have to be hoping that, you know, we, we get some news on the A's that maybe they'll stay around and they'll figure out a way to build a new stadium so we can maybe continue to watch baseball uh, in Oakland. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform. And you can follow us on Twitter at Almost Cool.